This is Titus chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is God's Word. And let's pause once again and ask for His help in study. Father in heaven, with our Bibles open, again we ask that you open our eyes, and open our ears, open our hearts. Lord, open our heads. May we first understand these things, what they meant. We'll understand then perhaps what it means. And Lord, then we'll be given what's necessary to be obedient to your directives. We ask for these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I've been singing a lot about the Word this morning. And um, in the end, really all of, all of that is, is prelude or setting the table for breaking bread, as we call it, breaking this Word apart and uh, feeding ourselves with it. At the end, it's, it's a study. We've got to figure out what it means, and then we can obey what it says. But it really is no more complicated than that. Now, this is condensed. We've got three verses, but we've got a lot to cover because there's a lot here. We want to make sure that uh, we leave no stone unturned. Um, To get to the point as as quickly as I think it possible... Uh, just a sketch as to what we read over, mainly the first three verses. Verse 1 and 2 are a final uh, description of what is expected of Christians, but not in their homes. We studied that already in in chapter 1. Not in their churches or in their places of employment. We studied that in chapter 2. This is in the public sphere. This is their social responsibilities. We knew this was coming. We've talked about what we'll see from week to week as we've gone along. But verse 3, after those two verses of direction, is a reminder of the way we were before we were saved. And those verses, verse 1 and 2, and what's expected of us and how we should act, and then the way we used to be, is quite the contrast. It's meant to be that way on purpose. Verse 3 is to show us that You've been changed. You you can now actually execute on this in verse 1 and 2, where without Christ's help, it would not be a possibility. So that's that's really uh, the target on the wall. We'll see if we can hit it by the end of the time we've spent together. Basically this, because Jesus saved us from who we were, it's now possible to live for him here and now. So what was it that's expected of us? Again, let's look back at verse 1, chapter 3, one more time. To be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, be gentle, 
and show perfect courtesy toward all people. Anything else? It's a pretty long list, isn't it? The word remind there uh, indicates that these things are not new to these folks. This is ground they've already covered. Uh, it's, it's hard to remind somebody of something you've never said to start with, right? So this is a rehearsal, a review. And the them that's said there refers to the people in the churches on the island of Crete that Titus is sent to organize, and Paul is writing to him for that reason. Um, it seems as if Titus is encouraged to repeatedly press these obligations upon their thinking and their consciences, even though they'd heard this before. I like this sort of thing because doing this every week, uh, you might be surprised that there's a lot of repetition in services. There are 52 of these every year, and the ones that fall near Christmas and Easter are an extra review. It's always the Christmas story, the Easter story. Uh, you struggle to say, well, how can I tell the same story and make it interesting and make it sound like it's not just something everyone's heard, which is a cue or trigger just to you know, zone out and think about something else, right? But that's our lives. School is a review. Raising children is a review of what was given to you by your parents. Much of life is a review. Uh, we reviewed how to brush your teeth this morning, didn't we? I hope we did. It's a review again. We're, we're probably experts at it at this level or trying to get there. So there's no shame in reviewing these things. It just digs that rut deeper, and it's a good rut. We're supposed to keep it. So let's organize our, our material. There'll be four points. You can track where we're going with these four points. Um, but the first one is the first part of verse 1. That's loyalty, uh, submissive to rulers, authorities, obedient. Uh, communities, the second point, that's the second half of verse 1, be ready for every good work. Courtesy is found in verse 2, that's not speaking evil of anyone, avoiding quarreling, being gentle, showing perfect courtesy. And then finally, there's humility. And that's that dose of reality of what you look like before Christ took you and made you his own. So each of these in order, we'll start with number one, that's loyalty. So remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities and to be obedient. Now in this case, according to this context and other things that Paul has said before and after, uh, it's easy enough to see that he's not talking about rulers or authorities within the church. He's talking about local government, being a good citizen of, of where you find yourself. Uh, allegiance to the legitimate ruler or government of one's country of residence. And this would not be, we have plenty of other places in Scripture to, to tell us, it's not a loyalty that should shift based on the control of a particular party or movement or regime or whatever you want to call it, but rather a loyalty that understands the function of government as being there by the decree of God. That... Men and women organize themselves and subject themselves to an organization of law and order. It's a good thing. It's, it's a positive. We don't want disorder and lawlessness or chaos or the biggest guys in charge and can do whatever he wants to or the richest or most influential. No, we, we order these things and plan it out. Now, America is much more politically polarized, I think, in the second half of my life than the first half of my life. And that's really all I know about 
you'd have to bring your opinion to bear. There are other countries uh, where it seems like politics is their national sport. Sometimes it's, it, it, it rises and it falls. We could waste a lot of time getting into what we think about that, or we can just stick with what he said about it, and maybe a nod to the political climate when this was written about 2,000 years ago. It was kind of worse than it is now. Rome basically ruled everything, and they would do that by putting their choice of ruler in general localities after it had been conquered. And a lot of times they would use local people. So imagine somebody else rules, but one of your own is in charge and gets paid a lot to do it. Is, is that a good setup? Well, maybe. <laughs> maybe it's not. You didn't get to vote. You just put up with what's there. And then Paul says, okay, when you're in your churches, you need to remind them that as Christians, the thing to do is to submit yourself to that and to be obedient and obey those authorities and those rulers because the system is ordained by God. It's a positive. Now, there can be wrong governments and illegitimate governments and abusive governments, and that's a different story, and there's other passages of Scripture for that. But if you can be peaceable with all men as far as possible, do it. Another place in Scripture that that tells us that's what we're to do. Uh, When Paul wrote to Timothy, different guy, different church, he told them to pray for those in authority. And we use that in our Wednesday night prayer meetings as the basis to why we pray for our governing officials. Uh, City, county, state, national, all of them. They need it. Um, Romans 13, 1 and 2. This is the same guy, Paul, writing to the Romans. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. It's fascinating, even in the Gospels, where the Jews talk the Romans into crucifying Jesus. But the reluctance at which the Romans, who didn't care about Judaism or this man named Jesus or these people, but as cautious as they were to try to find justice. And how many times it was said, we find no fault in this guy. So even though scriptures would call them pagan, there's this moral compass somewhere that seems to keep peace. We call it common grace. It's it's God's hand in the system. And, and it's good. Um, and then there are those that say, okay, okay, I get that. But uh, don't forget the passage in Scripture that gives us the, you know, the exemption where we don't have to listen to government. Well, that's in Acts 5. We covered that over a year ago. But it was uh, Jesus' disciples. He's been dead, crucified, buried, risen again. And it's the Jews who were instrumental in having put him to death. They said, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name, Jesus' name. Yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. You want to make us to be murderers. Yeah, because we were with him, and we saw his teaching, and we saw him dead, and then we saw him alive. And uh, we, we can't do anything but tell the truth of what we saw. We were there. So they conclude, we must obey God rather than men. So when you have a situation where your government says, we know what your book says, but we're not going to let you do it, then we have an impasse. But until that point, 
We're supposed to be Model A citizens and support them and obey it and, and help the system be better. You'll know when that point comes, and it'll be at great cost because things will have gotten really bad by that time. Until then, this is the way we're supposed to act. So that's loyalty, and there's your exception. We tend to want to jump to the exception when we don't like the rule, but we have no grounds for that. Number two is community. Be ready for every good work. Again, we need to pay attention to the context here. We could get this wrong, um, and we could talk about it being something it's not or not only. A lot of times, ready for every good work might bring up the idea of some form of, of, of charity or almsgiving, as the Bible used to call it. Uh, this is not only that, because you can do that privately. In fact, you're encouraged in places to do that privately, not let one hand know what the other's doing. Just be generous and give. You don't have to blow your own trumpet. But because this is talking about public service, this has to be um, a civic obligation. Um, Christianity isn't all about isolation and estrangement. I know it would be easier that way. Wouldn't it be nice if we just all lived in one big gospel bubble and nobody misbehaved we all talk the same thing and nobody you know cut up it doesn't work that way what was it martin luther that said christians should be considered as manure you don't want to pile it up it just stinks you spread it out in the field and it do everybody some good so uh spread out this is our public witness here to just isolate ourselves and then minister through our checkbooks is kind of not the point. You have to be involved and engaged, he's saying. Prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the welfare of the community around you. You can't stand coldly or aloof. And uh, it's, it's about showing good public spirit. Proving that Christianity is a constructive presence in society. Not everybody believes church is a constructive influence in the society anymore. So uh, give them something to think about by being a positive influence on the society. This was written 2,000 years ago. Um, there's one, one tangible illustration from my experience that I think works as good as, as any for something like this. I may have shared it when we went through this last time. But we taught through this little book in a Sunday school setting years ago when our kids were small. And the class was full of other young couples with small children, most of us. And a few weeks after we finished uh, studying this book, this passage was brought up again during uh, prayer time. We started class with that. And uh, this one couple said, since we studied through a practical way to be a good influence uh, the Lord's not going to let us off the hook until we share this with the rest of you and see if you want to do what we think we're supposed to do and they mentioned an apartment complex uh, on their way to work they passed every day and everybody knew which one it was when they mentioned the name of it a lot of us drove past it every day on our way to work but the difference in the way we were brought up and the way the residents of this apartment complex grew up and the way we think and the way they think 
if you were making a, a list on a legal pad of uh, things we have in common and things we don't have in common, you'd probably have more not in common. And it was one of those things where I don't know them and they don't me, know me and I don't know how I would ever know them or they would ever know me unless we did something on purpose. So they said, we're going to go over there on a Saturday and knock on doors and introduce ourselves. And that's it. We're not going to take them anything or give them anything. Just try to get to know them and see what happens. And maybe one day down the road when they know us and we know them, we can tell them about Jesus. But we're not just going to do it once and then never look at their face again. That might be the problem. So after they'd said this, we all feel like, well, I don't... What am I doing wrong? I mean, why do they see this if we don't? You know, it was kind of uh, convicting. So a few of us went with them. And then we got the crazy idea, why don't we see if they'll let their kids go to Awana with us? So we took a 16-passenger van one Wednesday, and we told them ahead of time, we'll be here on this date at this time if any of your kids want to go to Awana. And to make it easy, we'll make a meal for them ahead of time at the church, and after Awana's over, we'll bring them back. So before we actually did that, we decided because we needed to take the other 16-passenger van, and then we had to leave kids that were, didn't have a seat. So the next week, commandeered other people's minivans. And then when that didn't work, somebody gave us some money, and we bought an old school bus that smoked real bad because <laughs> it was the right price, but it was safe. And for the next several years, we filled up those two vans and that bus. And after a few years, when we knew their names and they knew ours, had some really interesting conversations with some of the mothers of these children where they said things like, we really didn't know what y'all were doing. And we kind of laughed when you drove off and said, isn't this nice? We get free babysitting and the kids get to eat. And we never expected you to come back. But she kept coming back. Nobody ever comes back. They'll come on a Saturday and give us a bunch of stuff, and they'll feel good, and then it's over. And we really don't need that kind of stuff. And we didn't think we needed any of this stuff, but now we know you and you know us, and when you come to bring us a cookout, you eat with us, and our kids play with your kids. It's different. And to this day, there are some teenagers now. They're not in elementary school anymore attending Sunday church with the rest of the kids that now they know each other. And you walk in Walmart and you hear your name called by somebody you'd never think you'd hear your name called by and get introduced. These are the people that we met at Awana. It's being ready for every good work. I think that's what it was. This couple was ready. God said, here's the good work. And it was contagious. It was the most inefficient way to do ministry on paper. It was very expensive in one category. Time. It didn't cost much. But time is worth a lot, isn't it? I think that's what he means here. Be ready for every good work. Uh, courtesy. Here's another one. Um, speak evil of no one. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. Show perfect courtesy and to all people. Now, uh, one thing we should notice, it's important, is Paul's elevated concern here. You know how your, your uh, parents usually teach you uh, not to use certain language that's, uh, you know, powerful, like the word never, because never means never. And usually you don't mean never when you use the word never, right? 
Well, Paul didn't listen to any of that. Look what he says. Speak evil of who? No one. Well, what about evil people? Sorry. Don't speak evil of them. Uh, avoid quarreling, be gentle, show perfect courtesy to who? All people. Well, what about the people that don't deserve our gentleness or courtesy? Doesn't matter. There's absolutely no wiggle room in any of that verse. He expects us to apply this across the board in, in totality. He sets out for Christians social attitudes which are to be applied universally. There's two negatives and two positives. The negatives are slander no one. That's what it means to speak evil. Um, that's just, you know, you can even do that with, with partial truths. Uh, but this, it's not fair. It, it doesn't help. It's not constructive. Now, there's a way uh, to correct someone. There's a way to do it in love, tell them the truth. Now, this is slander. It's, it's not good, and we never do it. Uh, that's the one half. The other half is peaceable. So that's the avoid quarreling. Um, ESV used the quarreling. I usually think of quarreling as like what kids do. But then when you grow up, you realize you don't grow out of that, do you? Y'all go to work. You have jobs. You know what quarreling is. It's drama. I'd love to, to, to be able to find a way for the human society to just band together and outlaw drama. No drama policy. We're just not going to do it. We're not going to get bent out of shape. We're not going to make mountains out of molehills. We're not going to fuss over the contents of what was left in the fridge, whether or not it should be thrown away or kept until something new grows in its place. All the little stupid piddling at work. Don't do it, he says. Avoid it. Quarreling, that is. Instead, here's the positive side, be gentle. We're to be considerate. Show true humility towards all men. Uh, those are two Greek words. We speak English, so we have to translate. And uh, doing so, we usually lose a little bit of the weight. The first word that we get uh, gentle from actually is, is more of a legal word. It means clemency. Uh, that is to give mercy and leniency, even when it's not deserved. Uh, the gentleness, graciousness... Uh, it's in a conciliatory fashion. And then the other word, humility, it also has courtesy built into it, consideration, and meekness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is power restrained and under control. It's kind of like something I saw the other day in town. There was this dude who was huge. I mean, it looked like Schwarzenegger a long time ago. I mean, I don't know where he worked out. It's just... You can't miss something like that. But in his arms was like this newborn. And he looked as comfortable with that newborn as I'm sure he does lifting weights, whatever he does to get... He had the power to neutralize or destroy any threat that would come to that little girl. But tender enough to be able to carry her around proudly. Uh, I, I thought it was great. It, it looked like the definition of meekness. It's not weakness. It's just it's controlled. And both of these ideas were, were characteristic of Jesus. There's no better example of gentle, perfect courtesy toward all people, uh, including the people that would band together to end his life. 
So, yeah, we, we got a, a work cut out for us here um, because it's difficult. We, we like the idea of no evil being spoken of us. We like the idea of no drama policy. We like the idea of people treating us courteously. But then life, when it gets stressful and we get out of our routine or comfort zone, um, I think we know all too well this can go sideways. Uh, the real world doesn't sound like that list. Uh, the real world is, I paid good money, I expect to get exactly what I paid for. Uh, this isn't done right, take it back. Now, something being done wrong could be corrected, but there's all the difference in the world in doing that with gentleness and courtesy or doing that mean and ugly. And on Sunday after lunch with your church clothes on and don't even leave a tip... That's partially meant to be a joke. <laughs> but it probably fits somebody in this room. Right? And we say it was a bad day. They caught me on a bad day. Well, Paul would say, no excuse. You can't get past the no one and everyone in that verse. And then there's number four, humility. And Paul is going to spell out for us the theological basis or reason behind why we are to have a social conscience this way and behave responsibly in public as Christians. And he does so by reminding us that we were once the opposite of that notion. Um, if we're to be social as Christians, he's going to remind us of how we used to be antisocial and not just avoid public, but things that aren't conducive to social flourishing. And here we have verse 3, one of the best indications, description of humanity at its basis that I think you may find in Scripture. For we ourselves, so he's talking about Titus, the church, all of them, were once upon a time foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So put another way, the only reason we ever dare say that we have the answer to life's question or that we have anything going for us as Christians is because we knew that at one point in time we had no answers to those things. If we have an answer now, it's because of God's grace. Because there was a time where we didn't have an answer and we were lost and estranged from him. So let's quickly look through the description of the way we were. I know there's a song titled The Way We Were, but that has little to do with this. Um, the way those saved by grace used to be. There seems to be uh, four couplets or pairs, so eight altogether, but they, they seem to come in pairs of two. Um, first, we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient. In other words, Mentally, morally, uh, the Bible uses the word depraved. Now, that carries some baggage. I don't think people would respond very well if you just walked up to someone in Walmart and said, do you know you're depraved? Uh, but spiritually speaking, God's looking at us. I created you this way, 
And then you sinned against me in disobedience and rebellion. So something changed. Uh, What I called good, I now call depraved. And that's why you need a Savior and a cross and salvation. I'm fixing that problem. So the way for us to winsomely demonstrate what it is to be a Christian is to never forget that we needed salvation. Uh, We weren't good enough without it. Uh, Depravity is the the term, um, but he uses foolish and disobedient. Those are kind of general terms that the rest of the stuff can be tucked up under. So what's the rest of it? Led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. That, That would describe... Uh, our existence. And both of those verbs are passive in form, which means that you didn't choose all that for yourself, but it kind of found its way to you and then led you away. Passions and pleasures sound like something you would want, right? He says you can be slaves to those things. There can be too much of a a good thing. Uh, I would think for men, uh, that that idea of being so good at something that you just dedicate your whole life to it to where your self-awareness is so absorbed into it that it's past workaholism. You're a slave to that idea of what you think you're good at and you'll cheat everything else to do it better until you croak. That would be an example of, of lead away and slaves to passions and pleasures. You fill in the blank. These things are, are pretty much universal. Um, both of them are passive, which means we're shaped by evils that were beyond our control. So not only foolish and led astray, but disobedient and enslaved. And then take it a step further, dig a little deeper, passing our days in malice and envy. With John Stott, he's a commentator that I read preparation for some of these things. I liked what he said. He said, these are very ugly twins. What what were the twins? Malice and envy. You see, malice is wishing evil on someone. That's not good. Um, While envy is coveting, coveting or resenting the things that they have. And this could be the same person. I wish they got hit by a train because they have stuff that I deserve, but they got it instead. I'm, I'm trying to make this up and make it where you can grasp it. But malice and envy... Are we willing to condemn ourselves for malice and envy? Well, a lot of our lives seem to operate on the basis of what other people could see or might be able to accuse us of. But what runs through our brain that nobody knows, we kind of let that pass as uh, unwanted. Where did it come from? Come from your heart? If it comes across long enough, maybe you grab on and take a ride with it. Um... Dad used to describe it as kind of like your head as a, as, a, as a tower at the airport where you give this stuff permission to land or no permission to land. And once you give permission to land, well, you might be off to the races. And then the last point, which is, is the worst of all, hated by others and hating one another, which is a way to say that the awful hostility of having been led astray enslaved to our passions, disobedient and foolish, malice and envy among each other in relationships is reciprocal. Not only do they hate you, you hate them. And we all know 
but that is the stuff of wars, isn't it? I'll do it this way. No, I'll do it this way. Well, I'm bigger than you and stronger, so you're going to have to do it my way. Well, I don't like that at all. I'll fight you for it. Uh, that starts in a sandbox, but it ends in world war. It's the stuff of war. Uh, there is wrong, there's abuse, there's, there's, there's opinion, and it ranges from one end of that to the other. Um, but is there any way that we can vindicate ourselves from at least in some part not being right in on all that? Right down at the bottom again where nobody sees but ourselves. Because it's, it's, it's selfishness, really. And we try to train our kids out of it in the sandbox, but we grow up as adults and we perfect the ways of saying it and getting it done without saying it or being known to have gotten it done. We, we get creative. And we've gotten so creative these days uh, with some of these big tech companies creating inventions that we love so much and are entertained by, but they know that if they show us the right stuff, then the ads will be more likely to be something that we'll spend money on. So in uh, the effort of revenue for their investors or their ad sales, they don't show you the good stuff that makes you warm and fuzzy and kind and happy. That doesn't motivate you the same as the stuff that makes you angry and upset. But since we like to be entertained, we let them use us to sell their ads. And it's just about now that some people are really seeing the damage this has done, and especially the younger generations, and have the guts to talk about it. Because if you talk about it, then the people that you know own these companies might not do business with you anymore. Or it might cause your stock to tank, or whatever else. Getting off here... All that's to say, natural in us is the ability with ever more sophisticated inventions, we damage ourselves. If it were the other way around, we would have improved ourselves a long time ago. And you really have only two options. Either we're good, basically, and something has to ruin us to go bad, and if that's the case, well, then who's the original ruiner of our people and children? Was it that kid at school? Well, who ruined him? Whose fault was that? You're always looking for someone to blame. Or the other idea is we're basically bad. That God made us good, but we rebelled against him. And since then, we've been bad, but he came to save us. It's one or the other. It, it can't be both. Or you'll drive yourself mad trying to figure out how it might shake out. So what do we do about it? Well, this passage here is saying, don't forget you were in a bad mess. Jesus gave himself for you to fix you up like you were before any of it went wrong. To present to his father uh, a spotless bride, as it describes. So I think this stuff has legs. It makes sense. It addresses what we see in the real world. But the point that Paul's trying to make by saying, here's how you should act, verse 1 and 2, and here's the reminder that you can act that way, but on your own you couldn't. 
The point of verse 3 is to draw a vivid contrast between the way we were and the way we can be. And it's not enough to say from chapter 2, 11, where he tells us the grace of God appeared, bringing salvation, that was Jesus, which is available to all men, without saying to the person, verse 5 that we read, when he came, he saved me. See, I think that that's probably the greatest stumbling block that the church has ever had, because once you get someone saved and you give them the rule book, they act like they're special and everybody else has got a problem. And if you'll listen to me, I can fix you too, rather than saying, you know what? I'm not any better than you. We're all the same. It's just someone told me the good news. I might have better news than you. And I'd love to tell you that good news. It has nothing to do with me. It has something to do with a, a God who sent his son down your behalf. We're not better people. We just have better news. That, that's the best case. That, I think, fits this, this attitude that he's talking about here. So why is it important? Because I don't think anyone is interested in what you think they ought to be doing with their own lives, especially these days. Don't tell me what to do. It's just your opinion, right? What makes you so special? Who died and made you king? But they may be interested in hearing about what your God did for you if it can be demonstrated that you're better off with that God than you were without him. And especially if you happen to look like something that person might want to be better at. But it wouldn't be you, it'd be your Lord. And you wouldn't be telling them how you pulled yourself up by your bootstraps. You'd be telling them how God can do for them what he did for you. It, it's, it's a massive amount of humility necessary to do that. And remembering the mess you were in before is a dandy in helping keep that perspective. So with some of these messages, I do like to address um, carefully and cautiously um, perhaps the skeptic who would, who would say, you know, um, I get it. It kind of sounds like a lot of uh, marketing strategy I've heard before. You Christians should act like Jesus such that people who watch you and like the, what they see will come to the conclusion that Jesus is what they've always needed. Is that, is that right? Well, that's a byproduct of it, but that's not ultimately the way the gospel or salvation would work. Um, there's only one source to convince someone of the truth of, of the claims of Scripture, and that would be the Scripture itself. It would always be improper to say, hey, I'll show you the way. It's always proper to say, hey, I'll show you where the way is written down. It precedes me by 2,000, 3,000, 4,000 years. It was written by men who was actually walking around with this guy named Jesus when he actually walked around down here, if he was actually God's son, and he actually died, and he actually rose again. Now, if we can credit that testimony, and it's kosher, then we have this whole basis of what to believe. But it's this book. It's not what I found. I'm not a guru. I'm not smarter than you. Because if it's that way, it's just stick you on the shelf with all that other health self-help stuff. Uh, maybe you can lower your price and sell more copies. Or you'll have to get a really weird-looking suit and the right hair and a lot of TV ad time, and maybe you'll sell more copies at more prices. I'm joking here. 
because it's so dumb. That's not this. This is old. It's very old. And you'll have to do homework into finding out, okay, how did we get this book? What process was used to compile it? Can we actually trust that as it was copied, it wasn't messed with? How do we know it wasn't made up? It's a, there's a whole half a lifetime in trying to figure out if you can trust it. That's involved too. But if you can trust it, if it's legit, I think it works. As I told you last week, I couldn't be convinced that it's not true. How does the world take care of the same problems? Because I do believe we all realize that the stuff that he's saying, envy and malice and, and hatred and all that's bad stuff. The world would say it. You don't need a Bible to know that that's bad and the world's full of it. So what does the world do about it? Educate themselves. That might help. Good examples. That could help. Uh, experiential encounters. Sure. Look inside themselves and see what they can clean up. Definitely. But do they work? Once you've paid the subscription and you've got the life coaching and, or you've had the uh, you know, confrontation or I don't know, does it work? In my personal experience, it didn't for me. This is the only thing that worked. If there's anything good about me, it's because of the boundaries given to me by this book and the hope that this isn't all there is. That stands me up straighter than somebody saying, hey, live your, your best life now. Just enjoy it. And, you know, there's a time on it, so do it quickly because then it's over. And then all the important things that mattered so much are gone. It's just deleted. I, I can't buy that. that. That doesn't make sense to me. I need help. Jesus helped me. And he's just getting started because I'm still a pretty big mess. I still deal with this stuff all the time. I still go to bed not saying, you idiot, but Lord, I need more help. I didn't do that right. I didn't speak to that person the right way. I spoke to the person, but I didn't speak the right way. And on and on and on. But I've got somewhere I'm aiming, and there's been progress. So we all know what this man's talking about, and we would all like to be treated the way he's saying we should treat others. But I think the real litmus test, perhaps for the skeptic, is the little sliver between what we all know is the way we should act and then the valiant effort on our part to act that way and the difference between it. Because we have different definitions of the way the world should act and the way I act. Because there's that little inner lawyer that wants to jump up and say, well, you had a bad day, so you get a break, hall pass. But you wouldn't extend that hall pass to the other person. Bring up traffic all the time. Do any of you get just aggravated when somebody goes through that orange light? And then are you honest enough with yourself the next day when you go through the red one? I can't be the only one that does that. <laughs> what is that little sliver between what I expect out of the other guy and what I just did myself? It's called the thing Jesus came to save you from. It's selfishness. It's I got this. I don't need you or anyone else. I'm okay. Not okay. I'm a lost sinner that needs Jesus. And without him, 
I'm lost. That's just one little thing, exercise you can run in the background every day of your life, and you'll come up guilty every day. I want to cheat. If it's just a little cheat, I want it my way, even if it's just a little my way. I want the advantage. I want the odds. I want it. I want it. I want it my way. But God said, you'll do it my way because I made you. You're my creation. You wouldn't be here if it weren't for me. This is what the Bible teaches. And if we look at that verse 4 and 5, here's, here's the antidote. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, this is next week's stuff, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. We didn't deserve it. We couldn't do it if we wanted to. That's not how it works. But according to His own mercy... By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, he saved us. And because he did that, we're no longer what we once were. We can be somebody we couldn't be before. And it's because of Jesus, it's not because of us. That's what this passage teaches. I think it's clear enough to see it. It's for your consideration is it true? Is it false? Does it work? You'll have to decide. Well, that said, we've had enough for today. It's been a meal. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for loving us enough not to leave us the way we were. But like a good parent, the true picture of a loving parent you want what's best for us. You want us to be right, kind, and wholesome. You want us to be like you. And you'll gently and carefully and graciously teach us and correct us and shape us and grow us. And Lord, for the good of your kingdom, for the harmony of our homes, for the good of society, and ultimately for the name of Jesus Christ, the name above all names, would you do these things and would you start with us? We ask this in your precious name. Amen.